Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Sarah McKenzie is the founder and host of Read Aloud Revival, a podcast and website committed to helping parents build a family culture around reading aloud. She's the author of Teaching from Rest and the Read Aloud Family, and she's also working on her own picture books. She's one of my favorite people to talk to. I think you're going to love hearing what she has to say. Sarah McKenzie, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast. Oh, Jonathan, it is an absolute pleasure to be here. I uh, I love your podcast. I love everything you do. I love the ways that you have reinvigorated uh, Read Aloud culture. So thank you for, for what all you've done with the Read Aloud Revival. I think it's just great. Well, thank you. You know, it's interesting. It's kind of one of those cases of <laughs> scratching your own itch, for lack of a more savory <laughs> metaphor there. But uh, <laughs> the idea is, you know, of trying to figure out what you, what's most inspiring to you and then like problem solving your own things, you know, and then yeah. realizing there's a whole bunch of other people out there who are inspired by the same thing and also have the same pain points. That's kind of the story of Read Aloud Revival, I think. So that's been kind of fun for me. Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, I've been interested to realize um, the extent to which writers benefit from uh, <clears throat> from audiobooks or read alouds. Um, I've had more than one author on the the Habit podcast comment on the fact that they that listening to audiobooks is part of their um part of their process um you know and and I just wanted to spend a little time discussing with you um what you know wh- why writers need to to listen to um to books out loud and to stories out loud. Yeah, this is so interesting to me too because I think until I really actually sat down and thought about it, what we're actually doing when we read language out loud, that we're, you know, reading the words from the page and then speaking them out loud with our mouths, we don't really even realize that a rhythm of language is heard. It's not seen. So yeah. if you have like a tricky sentence or a tricky paragraph, you don't know what's working, the quickest way around that is to read it out loud because then your ears picks it up. Um, one of the things, one of the authors I've talked to, she's a middle grade uh, writer, Laura Martin, and she was a teacher before she started writing full-time. And she told me that she really believes kids who want to be writers should be listening to more audiobooks than they should be reading them because that is how you get the rhythm of the language and those sophisticated, correct language patterns sort of just as a part of your DNA almost, right? Because uh-huh. you're just listening to them and absorbing them, and then they, your language comes out in a more rhythmic yeah. way with better cadence and yeah i i completely agree with that i don't i don't think i mean I, i'd heard you say that before and i and when you said that that was the first time i put it together how how true that was um it's also i, I think you know reading aloud reminds us that story is what's what's the word i'm looking for story precedes writing so as much as I love books, mm-hmm. as much as I love writing, um, mm-hmm. story goes deeper than writing. You know, writing's artificial, and story is not artificial, right? I mean, wh- whether whether we could no, write or not, point. we'd be telling stories. Yeah, where actually, if we really think about that, then the writing itself is just the 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the vehicle for getting the story from yeah. one human, one human soul to another human soul. And the writing is like the vehicle that does that. Yeah. But the story itself sort of lives outside of the printed words. Uh, yeah, you're right. I think listening to language, good language read out loud reminds us that there's this thing that lives outside of the pages and the letters and the construction of a sentence mm-hmm. itself, right? Yeah. Hmm. I, I think it's helpful to reflect every now and then on what a strange and artificial process writing is. You know, I mean, if, if a baby, uh, if you left a baby, you know, uh, with a fam, I mean, babies grow up with families, uh, they're going to learn how to talk and tell stories naturally. But they're not going to naturally, yeah. I mean, n- nobody sits down with a baby and says, okay, baby, here's how you talk. <laughs> okay, baby, here's how you tell a story. But if the baby wants there to start be writing... There intense parents out there. I yeah, don't know. Right. <laughs> Maybe so, yeah. Um, but, the, but the baby's not going to pick up on writing unless somebody teaches them to write because it is, you know, an artificial thing. And I, I, that sounds... We, use, we usually use artificial to be a... Um, a negative, a pejorative term. I don't, I mean, it's just a fact. It's, it's just not something that comes natural to us writing. Well, and that's when I think the word vehicle might actually be more helpful than artificial, even because then we realize it's for something. There's a purpose for the writing, right? Like it's, it's artificial, but it's for a good purpose and it has to get from one soul to another somehow. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Hmm. Um, Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think, you know, I can tell when in my own writing, when I am struggling with a, a spot or even if I'm not struggling, let's say I've finished an essay and I think it's done and it it feels good to me and I read it out loud, I will catch at least five more things reading it out loud to myself than I did the hundred times I scanned it with my eyes. So you just pick up on, and I think part of that is just that when you're reading with your eyes, you're skipping over uh, the connector words and you're Mm -hmm. skipping over a lot. You're reading quickly, whereas when you're reading it out loud, every single word has to be spoken in order with the proper (laughs) cadence. And so it just, like, the errors just, you know, it's like they have neon on them kind of when yeah, you're listening. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like a neon sign. Yeah. This is a problem. Especially if you can get yeah. somebody else to read what you've written back to you. That's so good. Oh, my goodness. So we're going to – I don't want to jump ahead too much, but uh, some of my latest writing projects, I've had my kids read out loud to me. And really? that's when I notice, oh, my goodness, that does not even make sense. Or they're, they wrote, they read it with such the wrong intonation, and they're – that I realize that's not nearly as obvious to the reader as it was to me writing it. You know, yeah. whenever you thought you were yep. communicating, you're not communicating, which is the problem of every writer, right? Because we, mm-hmm. we think we're communicating clearly. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't really notice where we're not. Yeah, the, the curse of knowledge. I mean, every exactly. writing problem, yes. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say every, almost all writing, very few writing problems are a result of, of a writer being ignorant. And knowing too little. It's that they know too much. They already know what they're trying to say, and so they write it down and think, ah, I guess, you know, that's what that says. And yeah. And <laughs> yeah. so um, I, I find it helpful to remind writers, you made this mistake not because you're an idiot. It's just you actually were a little too smart. You forgot what it's like not to know what it is that you're trying to say here. And um, Yeah. I've, you know, I've heard it say that the best teachers remember what it's like to be ignorant, and that's why they're able to teach. Um, oh, yeah, that's good. Mm. It's like kind of with parenting, too, because you feel that way with your – you can really empathize with your kids and reach them better if you can remember what it feels like to be five and be trying to make your bed and nothing works and everything's frustrating. <laughs> yeah, and right. this, can you tell what we did this morning? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. And so if we can like remember what it feels like to be in those shoes, then we make better decisions in how we interact with people. And I guess that's true in our real life, like in our, you know, flesh and blood life. And it's also real in our, the way we interact with our readers through the words we're putting on paper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that reminder. Uh, okay. There was, sorry, I'm looking at my notes here. Um, Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you about. So one of the themes in your writing and speaking um, is the way that um, that reading aloud builds culture, builds a community. Um, I want to talk about that a little bit and then talk about how that um, applies to a writer. So the floor is now yours. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, and this is kind of why I started to get a little bit fanatical, uh, it might be the right word, for about reading aloud, is because I had been reading with my kids. So I have six kids, and the first batch of children, (laughs) I had been reading with them bedtime stories, and, you know, just like most people read with their kids who aren't reading to themselves yet. Mm -hmm. And I heard this very inspiring uh, talk by Andrew Putowa from the Institute for Excellence in Writing about how the best way you can nurture your kids to be good communicators is to read aloud a lot with them. Mm -hmm. And then he also mentions memorizing poetry. But he was so inspiring when he was talking about reading aloud so much. Like, you can't read aloud too much, and this is why. It was so inspiring to me that I started reading aloud just a ton with my own kids. And all the things that he had said would happen, like their increased vocabulary, their better reading comprehension, their ability to write better, all those things did happen. The thing that floored me, though, was this sense of community, the sense of culture, family culture. Like, we had our own inside jokes. We would laugh yeah. at, kind of like when your whole family sees a movie and then people are quoting that for, you know, if there's yeah. like a quote or an inside joke or something funny that your child did as a toddler that becomes like the family joke, you know, around yeah. Thanksgiving or whatever. It's that all the time around these books that we were sharing. And I realized as my older kids got older, now our oldest ones are all in high school, that especially on those days when we're having a hard time remembering that we're allies, you know, if we're on the same team. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's when you sit down to read a story, you're rooting for the same characters. You're mm. holding your breath at the same moment. You're crying or you're moved in the same moment. And it's like, it reminds us all who we are in a different way than I think we could, if we just tried to, you know, grit our teeth and bear it or like yeah. like the moment or try to connect. It just gives us this really easy, it's like a, it's almost like a bonfire, right? It like draws us all in. Mm-hmm. We all circle around it and we kind of remember why like, we like each other. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. And so for, for the writer, I, I really think it's it's helpful to remember because most of us when we write, we're sitting alone in a room, and and you can forget. It's possible to forget that 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 you really you are participating in a community when you're writing. I mean, hopefully you are doing something that's going to connect to a reader. Hopefully, we'll connect readers to each other. Um, and I I, I find. You know, reading aloud, um, it helps me to remember, oh, yeah, this is a communal thing here. Um, books aren't just um, something that, that you make alone and that you consume alone, but stories are something that, that connects us. I find that very helpful. Well, and it's culture-making, yeah, in a different way. I mean, if we think about your books, Jonathan, the Wilder King series, just as an example, if you think of these families that are sitting down to read The Bark of the Bog all together after dinner or, 
you know, over a picnic or listening to an audiobook while they're on their road trip or what, wherever they're listening to it, that story ends up being this culture maker within their family, this, this opportunity, this new way for them to see each other and love each other better. That feels to me like this tremendous responsibility and this amazing precious gift that you're able to do alone in a room with yeah. the people you've never met and you will never meet you know yeah. it's kind of amazing it, it really is amazing and I, it's a it's a uh, a gift that i uh try not to take for granted you know um but yeah. even but even for people who aren't they're writing for it you know things that aren't going to get published um mm-hmm. it's still um even when you're sitting alone working, you're still putting out. You know, you're, you're like that, um, like that that spider in um, in Walt Whitman's poem, who is casting out those those threads, hoping that one of them is going to catch and he can move on. You know, he can connect to the wider world. Um, yeah. And um, and so I, I love I love that reminder um, that. Well, that kind of reminds me too of this idea that. Um, even if you're, whatever you're writing isn't ever going to see anybody else's life, you know, anybody else's eyes, no one's going to see it and yeah. it's not going to get published. And maybe it's just something you wrote for yourself. One of the things I've noticed in my own writing life is I'm just a better human being when I'm writing regularly. Yeah. And I think it's because, you know, we were made to love God and love each other. Right. And so mm-hmm. every time we write, when we sit down and we're putting words on paper, we, that's what we're doing. We're kind of making sense of this world where there are people who are, hurting or who frustrate us or who delight us, the joy. I mean, we're, we're doing that thing where we're taking this world God made and these people God put in it and we're writing about them or thinking through whatever our experiences are. I just feel like it is a practice of love really to sit down and write regardless of whether anyone's going to see it. Then I emerge from that experience, a better human being, better able to love God and love the people I'm going to encounter. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that that observation. Um, by the way, you can add this to your to your pile of of reasons to uh, uh, encourage people to read aloud. The idea of sitting alone in a room in a chair and reading silent to your silently to yourself is a relatively recent development, as I'm sure you know. Um, to the, so much so that in um, the Confessions, Augustine remarks that. I think it's Ambrose. He's surprised, or he thinks it's remarkable enough to write down in his book that Ambrose could read without moving his lips. <laughs> that's pretty. I mean, you know, that's amazing yeah. to me. That that you know that just I can, I had this memory just now surfaced that I haven't thought about for years. But I remember being in a first, second grade classroom when I was young. I was a first grader, and I was sitting there reading a book silently to myself. And one of the boys in class said, what are you doing staring at those words? And I said, I'm reading it. And he said, no, you're not reading it because I can't hear you. (laughs) And I remember kind of staring at him being like, but I'm reading it inside of me. (laughs) But it was like, it was, it was such a uh, interesting, like, I realized at that moment, of course, um, so that I'd start like moving my mouth because I wanted to prove that I could read, of course, because oh, I was in funny. first grade, nothing, if not very self-centered, right? <laughs> so, yes. That's amazing. But so you yeah, were like it, it Ambrose kind of and he was like Augustine. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, we could really dive into that, but let's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, one more, one more, one more thing about uh, uh, reading aloud. Um, 
And dialogue, it, it helps dialogue writing so much. You know, reading aloud equips you for doing dialogue if you're a writer. Um, even more so than listening to actual conversations does. Because if you were to transcribe a conversation, that would not be good dialogue. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, obviously... It makes so much sense to me, but I don't know if I've ever really thought of it like that. But yeah, of course, yeah. you know, that's the advice that we hear as a writer. Listen to how people talk right. to write. And if you're writing for teens and you listen to a few teens talk, you think, I don't really think I want to put that in. <laughs> I don't really know if that is even going to translate well. Will anybody yeah, even right. know what they're saying? Yeah. No, but I, mean, it's, it's, yeah. I think it is true that you definitely have to listen to the way people actually talk. But um, okay. but it's super helpful um, to read written dialogue out loud that works and and begin to understand the difference between good written dialogue. And you you, you have to do a lot of work to written dialogue to make it sound like natural speech. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll probably, it's probably time for us to move on to this conversation. Uh, but, but I will, the last thing I want to say is, you know, I, I, I've got a PhD in, in, um, uh, literature. Um, and that certainly didn't, didn't hurt my writing ability. Um, but what, where I really learned how to write, and to tell stories was from people telling stories. You know, it, it was, I had a family of people who, you know, my extended family, everybody was telling some story or another. And that's really where I learned how to be a writer, even more so than those academic pursuits, you know? Yeah, interesting. I'm also curious to know, and I'm like, here I am flipping it on you because I'm a podcaster, so yeah, I've right. got the questions, right? Um, <laughs> are you, do you find that the what's helped you as a writer as far as your reading goes, the reading that has helped you as a writer, was that reading more come to you through your studies in school as you studied or your own reading that you did on your own as you were either studying the craft of writing or just reading for yeah. pleasure? Does yeah, that make it, sense? Yeah, it, that does make sense. The the you know, as much as I love John Milton and John Donne and, you know, uh and those those people I got my PhD in I don't know that I, mm-hmm. I, um, in terms of putting sentences together, that's I really didn't learn, learn from that. Um, I guess there are yeah. certainly ways of thinking about the world that have shaped me and have shaped my writing. That I, you know, it seems strange to say it, but but there are ways that Paradise Lost influenced <laughs> the Bark of the Bog Owl, <laughs> which is funny to say out loud. But huh. um, yeah, but that's that's true enough. Um, but you know what I love about Paradise Lost is not what it's done for my writing so much as just what it's done for the way I think about the world, um, and the way I think about the world makes its way into my writing. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, but in terms of learning to learning to write, it certainly would I learned more from um, non academic pursuits. Uh, you know, and I mean Flannery O'Connor is a a a big one, and and I while I was introduced to Flannery O'Connor in a in an academic setting, you know. The huge majority of my Flannery O'Connor reading was not in an academic setting. Um, you know, I mean, okay. I, I read okay. two or three yeah. Flannery O'Connor stories in school, and I've read everything else that she wrote outside of school. Okay, so yeah, and I'm at, I was asking that question kind of selfishly. I have a couple of high schoolers who want to be writers and pursue writing when they're graduated and studying college and beyond. And as I've been looking at curriculum for them. Um, learning, you know, in our homeschool, their literature curriculum, whatever. What One thing I have just observed as a writer looking at writing curriculum is it feels to me like the writing curriculum and the reading that is, like, suggested by writers 
is of a different caliber entirely than mm-hmm. um, than maybe what is like a writing curriculum written by teachers. And I really just think there's like a different kind of a set of skills that you need to write, you know, a five paragraph essay for your classroom than right. there is for you to write something that like look, might show up in the New Yorker that people would actually read of their own free will, not because yeah. they had to, you know. Yeah. So that's interesting to me because I have noticed I mean, it's kind of this balance of trying to figure out how much reading do you, should you do for your schoolwork versus how much reading do you just get to pick and do because you're learning your craft. And mm-hmm. for me, my, I feel like almost everything I've learned about good writing has come through my own interest-led reading and writing and studying of the craft itself. But I wasn't sure if that was you know true for yeah, that's interesting to hear. Yeah, yeah, and I, I listen to um, uh, selected shorts. You know that podcast. I listen to um, the New Yorker um, fiction podcasts. Um, I find those uh, very helpful, um, and and not even because I now end up you know writing like the people in the New Yorker because you know a lot of times I'm not crazy about those stories, but. Um, but nevertheless, those are people who are writing. You know, what I'm the people I'm writing for are not the people who lived in the 17th century. Like I, I don't even have the option of writing for people in the 17th century, and so right, yes, um, and so it, it really is the the as much as I love 17th century poetry, um, I didn't <laughs> learn too much about how to how to write from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. So you have you've alluded to the fact that you, uh, besides being um, a read read aloud maven, uh, you also write. Um, did you yes. uh, d- did the read aloud revival come first, or did the the books your first book come first? What the writing came first. The book the first book came first, and really, so I've done two published books. One is called Teaching from Rest, and it's a book for homeschooling moms. Mm-hmm. The second is called The Read Love Family, which is for parents who want to connect with their kids through books. The Teaching from Rest came first, and that was really um, – it It kind of started as a collection of essays, which showed up as blog posts uh, uh-huh. as I was kind of working through some ideas of, like, how to homeschool your kids without all the anxiety that kind of comes with it. And um, and that really is it was so interesting as a writer, like how that experience has changed. I wrote that book when um, my fifth and sixth children are twins, and when okay. they were just a few months old. Yeah. And so I had nothing else to do, right? Except to <laughs> <laughs> write, write a book. Yeah, right, nothing else but to I, do. <laughs> yeah. What I did is I actually think I needed these like fifteen minute, like where I could get lost in my own project that wasn't babies and diapers and motherhood and, yeah. and think through some of the things that I was struggling with. And so that actually ended up being how I wrote the entire book. I really wrote that whole book in, you know, 15 minute chunks here and there around wow. baby toddlerness. And then, um, and then the read aloud and then the, you know, read aloud revival kind of was created and grew to what it is a lot closer to what it is now in between that and my next book, okay. which came out in 2018. Yeah. And uh-huh. those are both for, you know, those are both adult nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah, but you've also been working on some picture books for juveniles. I've been working on some picture books. I'm. This has been. This is sort of my big scary thing. I'm doing creatively right now because yeah. it's it's uh, it's different. It's a different kind of writing. It's more like poetry than it is uh-huh. like essay writing. Um, it's just it's a diff, different kind of difficult, um, but it's energizing in all the right ways. I think. Um, so I, it's one of the things that's been interesting for me as I've been writing picture books and getting them critiqued and working with an agent and showing them to other authors I trust is I just, I'm hearing a lot more no's and start over and try again than I've ever heard with my writing before. Yeah. And it's been difficult, but it's also 
really, I guess energizing is the best word I can think of to describe it. It's sort of, it's, it's almost like it, this kind of writing lives in a whole different part of my brain, you know, than yeah. the writing I do for adults. I, I mean, I would say I feel this huge responsibility, and I bet you can understand this, Jonathan, as a, as a person who writes books that kids read, right? Mm-hmm. I feel this huge responsibility when I'm writing books that I know are for children. I like a much greater responsibility, really, than I do when I'm writing books for their parents. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, and so... Yeah, and so it's just it's been more challenging there, but it's also really life giving. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's been a new, interesting, creative endeavor. I've not had any success with it yet, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, well, wait a minute. Publishing success is not the same thing as success writing, right? Okay, thank you. Yes, that is a hundred percent true. Let me say that I have not had any publishing success with it yet, but I'm having a lot of really fun early morning by myself, gleeful, delightful times writing yeah. them, and and I am. Like seeing yourself improve, like when you take a draft to the 20, I mean, you can do like a bazillion drafts in a picture book because they're <laughs> short. So, yeah. uh, so like by the time I get from draft one to draft 20, it's really exciting to look at where it's come from and feel like I'm getting better. It's hard sometimes to measure, am I getting better as a writer? Well, with my picture book work, I feel like I can see that yeah. a little bit more clearly and that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So you've gone from writing in 15 minute chunks um, and we kind of, you know, slid right past that. I didn't even stop you to to hear more about that. But but now that now that you have, you said you're getting up in the morning. You're having some some time. What did your 15 minute chunks? What skills did you develop in those 15 minute chunks that are helpful now? That I assume you mean in the morning you're spending more than 15 minutes, correct? Yeah, I am, and I don't do it every morning. But when I was writing in 15 minute chunks, I would have dearly loved to have more than that. But we had three babies who were <laughs> two and under and then three <laughs> yeah. older kids that was homeschooling. It was yeah. a little crazy. Yeah. And I really did just have like 15 minutes between before I had to grab another, you know, baby to nurse them or they'd fallen asleep or it's time to change a diaper or teach another kid math. And so I trained my brain basically. I think it really, my brain just knew if you don't write in this 15 minutes, like you're not going to get a chance to write today. Yeah. Or you're yeah. not going to, you don't know when your next 15 minute time will come. And because there was like this limited amount of time and it was really important, I felt better when I was writing. Yeah. I do. And I should say that book was mostly written before I realized it was going to be like a book or something that I was sharing with the world. So uh-huh. there was a lot of like personal therapy think, that was happening <laughs> as I was writing that book as far as far as like me working out stuff I was thinking about. Yeah. So now I think I have probably, um, that gave me the gift of learning to tell my brain it's time to write. Like you have 15 minutes, go. And one of the tricks that, that, um, that really helps me with now is I will almost never tell myself I have to write for more than 15 minutes. Because if I say you have an hour, you're going to go write for an hour. I will get freaked out. Like I'm not going to have anything to say. It's all going to be garbage. And so I will still tell myself, even now, if I have a four hour time period or in the early mornings when I have an hour, um, I will tell myself, all you have to do is write for 15 minutes. And so then it, it's like it tricked. I know I'm doing it to myself, yeah, but right. it's like I trick my brain. Into thinking, you can do anything for 15 minutes. And yeah. as soon as your 15 minutes is over, you can go scroll Facebook. But then when my 15 minutes is over, I don't want to scroll Facebook because now I did the hard part of starting. And I'm yeah. usually kind of in a, not always, but I'm usually kind of in a mojo. You know, you, you've got your flow going or, or at least you're in the mode. So it's yeah. easier to keep going than it is to stop. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great insight, and I, I often say, um, you know, nobody writes books; they write 
sentences and paragraphs. And I love it. I love it when you say that. I had that on my, a sticky note on my computer for a while. Uh, oh, good. I didn't realize <laughs> I was so repetitive. Post, Sarah, you just have to write a sentence. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> yes. And when you when you uh, go running, you know the the question isn't can I run four miles a day? It's can I run to that next telephone pole? And you probably yeah, can. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. All right. Um, and by the way, I, also I, I can't. Uh, I need to. I need to circle back around to something you. You this moment of brilliance that you threw out there, and then we just kept going. And that is uh, the idea of accepting the limitations that you're in the middle of instead of resisting them, because those those yeah. limitations. If what you want to do is qu- is to quit, then there you go. You got your excuse. Um, yeah. But if you uh, work with those limitations, within those limitations. Um, and and demonstrate yourself that you can do it. Good things start to happen. You know, in the last hour um, that I've I record these podcasts in batches, and so the last hour before I before you, I was talking to the singer songwriter J.J. Heller, and she was talking about how she um, has a polyp on one of her uh, uh, vocal cords, so she can't sing loud, um, and so she got in the lullaby writing and singing business, and it turns out that's your sweet spot, right? At least for right now. Huh. Um, yeah, know, and you had fifteen exactly minutes, the, yeah, so so you exactly wrote in you wrote within those yeah. limitations. I love it. Yeah. Well, and even now, there's the limitations look a little different. So I, I have more than fifteen minutes. I can get up early as long as I'm not sacrificing sleep. So like uh-huh. you know, I don't always get up. I'm not like the most um, consistent person on the face of the planet. But uh-huh. um, I think realizing, okay, you know, in my season of life right now, I homeschool my kids for the first half of the day. I work at Relot on my Relot Revival work for the second half of the day. Mm-hmm. So. I have early mornings or a special Saturday, you know, at, you know, where I sneak away at the cafe or something to do my writing. And that constraint itself kind of, and this may just be personality thing too, but it really does help me go like, if this is something I want to do and it is, then that's where I've got to fit it. Mm -hmm. And it's just surprising to me how much we can do when we, instead of fighting and going like, Oh, I just, I will be a writer when my kids are grown or when the kids are in school all day or when I have a two hour chunk every day or yeah. when I can write first thing in the morning, we can give ourselves all kinds of like idealistic, um, you know, when this happens, then I can do the thing I want to do, or we can just do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's any good. And it might not be a lot of times I feel like, you know, those 15 minute chunks, um, a lot of that just got thrown away, never showed up in the yeah. book or never seen the light of day, but it was still, yeah, it was still worthwhile. So, you know, something you just said about how you don't write a book, you write sentences. Um, I was talking to the author, Gary Schmidt, who's one of my very favorite um, middle grade and YA authors. Mm-hmm. Actually, he's written for all ages, but yeah. he told me, he types on a typewriter. And really? he said the reason he does it, because at the end of every line, it goes ding, and then, it, you know, it goes And he said it feels like, good job, do it again. Wow. And I am like, oh my goodness, that is exactly what we need as writers is like you write a sentence and even if it's not any good, you just go, good job, now do it again and do it again. And you can come back and fix it later, but keep doing it, you know? Now that's what I need to tape to my uh, desk. Good job, do it again. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Every time you put okay. a period down. <laughs> now this, this is, this is um, uh, you just gave me the transition I was looking for. Um, in your work with, a, with the Read Aloud Revival, you end up uh, talking to some of you, your favorite writers, some of the best writers who are alive, you know, certain of the best writers of children's books who are alive. Um, that wait a minute, that was a weird thing. That sounded like I was uh, 
putting writers of children's book as, as if they didn't count as writers. I mean, you know, some of the best writers alive who I also happen to be children's writers. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, you you did something with Sally Lloyd-Jones earlier this week. I mean, she's one of my all-time favorite yeah. writers. And what's that like to go from, okay, I'm hanging out with, not, I mean, I, I am having conversations with Gary Schmidt, and now I think I'll go write a children's book myself. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? That, that could be yeah. a little, that, that could be daunting for some people. It it is, and I will tell you, um, it's been a special kind of challenge. And I wonder if I have set myself up to make to make the act of writing uh, for children, especially, more difficult than it needed to be. Um, mm-hmm. I was in New England last year, and I had breakfast with Jeannie Birdsall, who's the author of the Penderwicks books, yep. which are some of my favorites. Oh, what great books! And she, yeah, oh, they're so good, um, so good. And she told me. When I was, we went to the, her independent bookstore after breakfast. We're like poking around, handing each other books. It was so fun. Uh, you know, have you read this one yet? And she said, you know, I haven't read a lot of these because I really try to guard myself from writing, reading too much, and letting other things, you know, influence or she said feel make her feel insecure because uh-huh. you know she sees this other author who's this award winning, keeps winning all these awards, and then your brain just kind of naturally goes like, what am I not doing that that author's doing mm-hmm. that I should be doing? And uh, she said, you know, Sarah, that's going to be interesting because I had talked to her about writing for children. And she said, that's going to be an interesting challenge for you because you are purpose. This is what I do at Read Loud Revival. I read ridiculous amounts of of middle grade and picture books mostly yeah. and try to find the very best of the best and then talk to their authors. And then I sit down and try to write. And I hear, I mean, I think all writers, we all have a hard time not comparing our terrible first drafts, middle drafts. Tense drafts uh-huh. <laughs> with other people's finished drafts, right? Yeah. But because of the what I'm doing by reading so much of this best stuff and trying to find this best stuff, um, this best writing for children, I feel like um, it's like almost exacerbated a little bit that that yeah struggle between my work, which was definitely not Kate DeCamillo work, and then the eight books I just read by Kate DeCamillo in that interview I just had with her. I yeah. think, oh my gosh, you know. Yeah. So there's sort of like this little Newbery award-winning author on my shoulder who's looking <laughs> over me when I'm writing going like, mm, really? You yeah. think this out there? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I don't know what Kate DeCamillo's voice sounds like because I would be hearing it, you know, in, in my when I was trying to write. Um Oh, but she's the sweetest. So actually, uh, I would love it if she would snoop my shoulder. <laughs> it's it's amazing how often her name comes up in these conversations, these these podcast episodes. When I'm asking writers to talk about their favorite writers, um, man, she's yeah. just she's she is a uh, she's a treasure. Um, well, you know, and when I and I lo- I've loved her work, and I've read her her things on writing, and and listened to little snippets she's talked about writing here and there. But when I interviewed her. I was just sort of gobsmacked. I thought, I think I'm actually talking to a genius. I mean, she just mm-hmm. has this really soul deep understand or uh, understanding is not the right word, like call or something mission to telling really good stories and 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 leaving this generation of children with hope. And it's yeah. just telling and yeah and yeah so i would i would welcome her if she ever wants kate if you're listening to this and you ever want to come sit over my shoulder while i'm writing i will give you anything any snack you want and you can come over and watch me write (laughs) well uh here's hoping uh kate decamillo listens to the habit podcast i I don't have any reason to believe that's true but you know um but one can always one can always hope that's right okay last question who are the okay. writers who make you want to write? 
Oh, I love this question um, because there's such a difference between like just my favorite writers yep. and then writers who, when I put their books down, go, I, I got to write something. I, I got to do that. I got to try to do that. I got to yeah. try to do something kind of like that. Uh, okay. So there's a couple. Um, and I mostly for, because I, my brain has been working more on writing for children. That's kind of where my creative energy is towards. So in my, the first people that come to mind are indeed Jeannie Birdsall, who wrote the Penderwicks, uh-huh. uh, Karina Yan Glazer. So I don't know if you've read these yet, uh-uh, Jonathan. I don't know but, these books. Okay, the Vanderbeekers. There's uh, the Vanderbeekers of 141st yeah. Street, Vanderbeekers in the Hidden Garden. There's a new one coming out this year called the Vanderbeekers to the Rescue. Uh huh. I think there's going to be two more. You They're know what? Like I, I think in my mind, looking. I think in my mind that was more yeah. Jenny Birdsall books. I, I didn't realize that was something different. They're very similar. Uh-huh. They have a similar tone and feel. Uh-huh. Um, and those are the kind. They're like big family. So the Vanderbeekers are this biracial family that lives in Harlem, and all the siblings have to band together to help their family. Like through a pickle, which is kind of this old school, like Eleanor Estes, Elizabeth Enright, you know, you've got like a bunch of siblings and their parents and the siblings kind of have to band together to help the family do something. And then they end up getting themselves into more trouble. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I love those stories. I love them so much. And so, and that's kind of like the Penderwakes too. And so that, I think those big family stories where they're um, like trying to work together, but you've got all these personalities that butt up against each other. It's so much like my real life that it, <laughs> I don't know. I love it so much. I, those are the books that make me want to write a middle grade novel. Yeah. Um, but picture book wise, um, Barbara Cooney always takes the cake for me. She wrote Miss Remphius and she's an illustrator and an author. So there were some that she wrote and some she wrote and illustrated. Uh-huh. Um, and then Sarah Stewart is another one that really makes me want to write. Okay. So she writes the picture books like The Gardener and The Library and they're I don't know. I, the Gardener is one we've been reading a lot this month, and it's like this epistolary picture book that there's so many layers. It's like mm-hmm. a sweet picture book that you just think if if you can do this in like 500 words and you can leave me at the end of the book thinking of there, I got to go back and read for that second layer that I just picked up on. It's just, I don't know how to describe it except to say that there's something about picture books that is magic of what you can do in 500 words and keep kids and their parents coming back for more again and again. That's that's the kind of magic I want in on yeah. it. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I want in on. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Eleanor Estes. She wrote 100 Dresses, right? Is she that did. Eleanor Estes? Yes. Yep. That book right. amazes me. Um, I need to read that one aloud to my kids. I haven't read that one aloud to them, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am crazy about that book. And that's the only, that's the only Eleanor Estes book I've read. Um, so, well, Sarah... It has been such a – it's always a joy to, to spend any kind of time with you, even if it's on the phone. Um, and so thank you for being on the Habit Podcast. And as I already said, thank you for the work you're doing for families and for authors um, and for the culture of reading aloud. Um, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. Oh, Jonathan, thank you so much. And the feeling is mutual. Your email, your habit email that you send out each week is one of the very few that I like bookmark and tag if I can't read it right when it comes in because I'm going to read it 100% sure. They're so helpful. Well, thanks. So I'm I so really appreciate the work you're doing too. All yeah. right. Thanks, Sarah. Talk to you soon. You're welcome. Okay. Bye bye. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio and the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. 
Special shout out as well to the Arcadian Wild for allowing us to use their delightful song Finch in the Pantry as part of this podcast. Check out their album of the same name for more excellent music. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.